Welcome to the React Native Show podcast in our series React Native at Scale. Today, I have a privilege to have someone, and Mike, I'm going to introduce you in a minute. I'm, have, I'm having someone from big fintech startup Klarna. We're going to talk about Klarna today. We're going to talk about intersection of business and technology with emphasis on the latter. And to, the, to do the emphasis on the latter, I have another guest from Colstack, Kuba, who is dealing with, and he was, he's going to tell you who, uh, what is he dealing with. So uh, my guest, my first guest, Mike, can you uh, tell us who you are, who do you work for, and what is your role at that organization? Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. I'm Mike Dumini. I work at Klarna. As a principal engineer and uh, a domain architect, um, I'm particularly I'm working on the scaling of our front-end technology, um, especially within our app. So we are uh, we have a React Native app, and I believe it's probably one of the largest ones. Um, I don't really have any data on that, but, uh, <laughs> but I can tell you some um, some high-level figures, which is we have about 400 people working on it. And it's used by tens of millions of people um, every month. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that gives me some <laughs> some sort of uh, white coat that you can trust me. That, oh, yeah. Uh, that we, we, we're doing something here. <laughs> um, I feel like our listeners should know what Klarna is. Even if uh, they didn't use the product, the Klarna name is like really quite well known. I'm not sure if everyone knows that uh, you use React Native under the hood, and I'm not sure from those people that know that you use React Native under the hood, if they know that you use Repack under the hood of React Native. Hello, Kuba. How are you? Hey. Uh, yeah. So, as already said, my name. So, um, I'm a software developer here at Colstack. Uh, I'm the maintainer of Repack library. Uh, I also the, um, am helping with the concept of super apps uh, and i'm also the author of super app training yeah so that is our intersection today we have an intersection of klarna as a business klarna as an organization and technology as in how technology impacts organization and other other ways around and uh Kuba is our expert on Repack and Klarna uses Repack. So it's a great opportunity for us to, to spend the next three hours discussing this. How are you feeling, guys, about that? Great. Yeah. It's good to be uh, in the room with, with the people that build the tools that we actually use. <laughs> yeah. And thanks so much for coming to Wrocław. You are actually recording from Wrocław, which I like to say is a capital of React Native. And uh, Klarna is based in Stockholm. So you came here yesterday just to record this and also to have some like coding session probably with Kuba later on. Yeah, we'll see if we've got enough time for that. That would be yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. Looking uh, forward to that. Let's start. Mike, I want to ask you a question and I want you to answer this from a few different perspectives. So please tell us what is Klarna as a business and how is Klarna structured as an organization? Okay. So. 
there's a little bit to unpack there. What is Klarna? Well, I actually didn't know about it at all before I moved to Sweden because um, I'm originally from South Africa and uh, it hadn't reached our shores yet. But it, the way I like to think about it is almost like a, a, a Swedish um, sort of PayPal-ish thing that allows you to buy now and pay later. And uh, But that's, that's sort of what it was when I joined. Um, since then, we have grown to become a, more of like a, a shopping, uh, a, a company that enables people to to shop. Right. So that includes a bunch of things like we, we have an app, a, a consumer offering that is exceptionally um, wide in its feature set. So you can, for instance, buy things inside the app. Uh, you can find things to buy you can pay for them. You can track the deliveries. Um, you can uh, earn points and rewards from those things and use coupons and, and all sorts of things. So we're just trying to make shopping like the easiest thing and the best thing. Um, Sounds like a super app. <laughs> it looks like a super app too you know it's got uh, on the home screen you've got like a, a bunch of links to other bits okay i'm not sure if that qualifies it but uh, yeah that's that's sort of how we think about it so um that's the aspect of the business that i work on Klarna itself is a is a bigger company than that and a lot of um uh, a lot of the business uh, still comes from integrations with merchants so for instance you as a customer you would you would go to, let's say, Ikea, and then you would say, hey, I want to check out with Klarna, or I want to pay with Klarna. And then mm -hmm. it could, your your debt would then be towards Klarna, not towards the business. Um, and then you can have these uh, flexible payment plans uh, between you and Klarna. So it's it's also about convenience um, from that aspect. So maybe let's, uh, I understand what you're, what you're saying. Uh, probably, most of your business is what's not visible to the user, right? It's like all the processes and like flows that uh, I as a user only see the end result of. Right. Uh, yeah. I want to briefly touch on, on on my question to you. Is it a super app or not? And give, it the, give that question to Kuba to help us answer this. Uh, what is the definition of super apps that you, um, Kuba, follow? in like your super apps training in like repack materials. I always like to quote the uh, tweet from the Timiki, uh, which uh, basically said, uh, nobody knows really. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, essentially, if you can divide some kind of, uh, you can divide your app into specific functionalities that serve a, a purpose, then you got yourself a super app, right? If it's nicely divided and is uh, and that is kind of reflected in the organizational structure in your in your company, then you can call that a super app. I've got a follow up to that. Um, so, Klarna went through a um, a redesign to make it into a super app. Uh, internally, we we spoke about it like that, and I think that the the sort of technical side of that is. Uh, is what holds up quite a few of, uh, of well, it held up me and my and my colleagues mm -hmm. in thinking about it. Because when I think about a super app, I'm thinking of like the Chinese super apps that um, maybe every single part of it is completely independently deployable, and um, you know, sort of self-contained and and can be developed in isolation. But uh, I think a lot of places today are calling themselves super apps um, when they're not following that necessarily. 
and that I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just um, an evolution of the term to be more like an app that has a bunch of functionality that's sort of all exposed to you on the same level. Uh, is that does that line up with your with your experience? That also lines up, yeah. But uh, you know, it's it's really hard to you know just stick to one definition. It's it's super apps is whatever you you want it to be, really. The, uh, the end. I also think, like in your example, um, it was very dev centric. I would say you were saying about like uh, self contained and independently uh, deployed. Users don't know that. For sure. <laughs> if you change your architecture from one version to another, but the uh, user-facing feature stays the same, does it mean that uh, yesterday you were not a super app and today you are you are a super app? Probably not. Probably it ma what matters is what is the um, look and feel of the functionalities that has been visible to the user. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I think this is something that like as technicians, people need to also let go of. You know, this is a, an evolution of the of the terminology that we're using. Yeah. Uh, okay. Going by from super apps, let's go back to Klarna for just a little bit. Uh, we will talk about organizational challenges still uh, in the in the next bit. Uh, I want to touch on Klarna, Klarna's numbers. Maybe what is the scale? Or you already said millions of users are using the mobile app, but what yeah. is the scale of the business as a whole? Yeah, so I can uh, I can share some numbers with you here. Um, we have uh, over 2 million purchases per day globally. Um, that isn't all through the app. This is uh, a, a, on a company level. Uh, and we have over 150 million customers from a company level. But if you focus just on the app, we've got about uh, 80 million downloads, um, roughly 30, uh, 30 million uh, monthly active users of the app and uh, and like for functionality within the app like people are actually using it like we've got this concept of something being wishlisted for instance if you find a an item that you want to track the price of you want to be notified if the price drops or or something like this uh, we've got like 42 million of those so so there is a there's certainly a a large amount of uh of traffic coming coming to Klarna. it's not it's not clearly like at the super extreme levels but it's 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 enough to to run into some scaling um issues or things that just running a small startup can't really think about i also have a thought and this is not a question just a comment of what you said uh about your users being distributed along your different features so it's uh, i think it poses a mm, a nice challenge to have from like analytics perspective to to know what users are using what modules of your systems and uh, how can you like maybe entice them to use some more modules from your system it's a nice problem to have well, this is what i'm saying yeah definitely <laughs> and i mean like so much of of our uh, work goes into instrumentation and understanding user behavior um, and then trying to be as data centric about that, you know, A-B testing small changes to the app, where, whether it be a design change in a particular market or um, it, it could even just be a wording change, literally. And mm -hmm. you A-B test that and you figure out, is this, uh, uh, is, is this driving more traffic or not? Or is this like reaching the KPIs or, or not? But 
Yeah, there's a, there's a, I guess my, my point here is that there's like a wealth of, like you said earlier, there's a lot of stuff under the surface mm-hmm. that yeah. we can't see from the outside. Um, a lot of supporting systems that enable all of this. Okay. Um, this is a React Native show podcast. Yeah. And we should talk a little bit about React Native just to, uh, you know, uh, stay on the team, let's say. Uh, can you tell us, what was the drivers for a decision to bring in React Native first to Klarna? What was the like thought process? What were your goals uh, by doing this? And what is the end result? Sure. The, so I, I wasn't at the company at the time, but uh, because the, the app has been around for about six years and I've been there for five, I know that before React Native, we had a HTML5 app. And uh, I'm sure it ran into all the problems that, that we're thinking of uh, when I say that. And so having React Native, I can only speak about as someone who's joined after, but having it has enabled us to sort of set a, a, a standard within, within various touch points from, from a consumer perspective. So we have a monorepo that has, uh, that it feeds our React Native app, but it also holds all the services that service that. And that same code base is used to build our web app and um, various internal apps and and our browser extension as well. So we have got a a large shared code base. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a typical answer, I guess, but one of the main things we get is the fact that we can share so much logic and so many um, pieces of, uh, of UI um, among these different targets. It also means that if you want to add a new target in the future, that becomes really easy to do. So let's say we want to now exp- like, uh, appear on TVs or something. Then as long as we have the correct abstractions in place and React Native gives us most of that out of the box. And then of course, we've got things on top of that, like a design system and, and almost like an in-house expo layer, you know, where we are abstracting some of the, some of the platform specifics or the business specifics. Um, the other thing that using React Native gives us is, I mean, we, we start, we're, we're writing JavaScript on the front end in every platform and on the back end. So we're able to do things like share types um, share some support libraries, share tooling even. So the same tooling that builds the front end can, uh, or at least the underlying tooling, um, and validates that things are, are, are correct. All of that can be written in one language and, and used everywhere without worrying about it. Uh, then also we have a very low barrier to entry to collaborate. So it's much more likely to find someone who writes react these days than Mm -hmm. it is to find someone who can write uh android native code or ios native code and even if you do find those people you need to um have two of them and now you can do that with one and this is part of the 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 i mean i guess this is true of, of any sort of project that scales but once you get to a certain point you can start to um introduce more abstractions so that your feature developers are doing 
are focusing more on the on the problem that they're trying to solve. They're not trying to tweak things on each platform necessarily. Mm. They you give them a framework to work with, and then they just say, "Oh, cool! I need a screen. I need a button." And it doesn't matter to them what it appears like on these different platforms. Obviously, they're able to like fix problems if they do uh, occur on a specific ones. But but this sort of plat- platform agnosticism is um, is super super important for us at Klarna. Um, in getting to the scale that we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I've heard from your answer is that you have very large code base, Monorepo. It can produce all kinds of targets from all kinds of like interconnected modules. Uh, and uh, honestly, this is not uh, rocket science, right? Sure. Like uh, a, a lot of different products have the same uh, similar structure and similar benefits. Uh, so tell us something about maybe some industry, like fintech industry challenges that you solve or you struggle with when it comes to like this kind of architecture and like, uh, React Native in, in particular. Yeah, I think that there are lots of, um, general fintech problems that are not necessarily made easier by using um, React Native or, or JavaScript for that matter. So one of the biggest things is you want everything to be as stable as possible because uh, especially during during like seasons like uh, Black Friday as a payments <laughs> provider, if you're down for one minute, 10 seconds or something like that, you can yeah. get a measurable impact. Of the Someone product. will lose their bonus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot riding on the stability of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, JavaScript is not uh, terribly um, stable. I would say it doesn't have a, a great history of, of of stability. So, so this is uh, one challenge. But it, but like I said, it's not specific to React Native. Um, the other thing is compliance. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies uh, today are building things based on NPM modules, for instance you know, just grabbing things uh, off the internet and, and plugging them in because why wouldn't you? That's what you do in every project. This is the, this is a good, a good practice. We're able to build on, on top of things. But part of the problem here is that those packages could change or they could not be compliant in some uh, regulatory um, rules that could apply to you. So Klarna being fintech, it's not just fintech. It also has a banking license. Mm-hmm. So it's, beholden to a higher standard and we have to um, make sure that that everything we're we're using and everything we're doing um, meets that standard so how do you um, how do you deal with npm libraries uh those are not necessarily known for their like stability is not a good word but if something depends on just one person that can like release or change the package on the fly and add like, I don't know, like cri- cri- cryptocurrency mining or something like that to their package. So how do you deal with those kind of challenges? We've got a layer in between us and NPM. And in fact, us and CocoaPods and um, Gradle and like Maven and all these different things. So all the dependencies. Exactly, yeah. So those all go through a, like an internal mirror, which we control and we are able then to isolate, if, if there is a problem with a particular one that we can discover, we can immediately react to it and uh, and isolate that and, and remove that 
broken version, for instance, from from our, our mirror. And then also on top of that, we we are using some sort of dependency scanning as well to make mm-hmm. sure that you know any commonly known um, problems that people might have, like uh, common vulnerabilities or known vulnerabilities as they come out. We uh, we are normally able to tell pretty quickly who is affected inside of the company because we have this this mirror with like a mapping of oh who's getting what from where we can track all the order trails and all that kind of stuff. So. As a developer, can you walk me through my like onboarding path? Uh, I want to add this like new shining cool library because I need to do um, module two, right? <laughs> Mod two, I want to do it. I don't want to use JavaScript. I want to use NPM package. Uh, weird example, but like this library is needed for some reason. So how would that process look like? Um, who needs to approve this package? Is someone like really going into all of the files in that package and like checking it and then pulling it into your mirror server? How does that work? So from my perspective, I don't think anyone's doing that sort of compliance checking. Uh-huh. Um, maybe maybe someone on our security side is, is going through that. But uh, as we all know, you know, node modules is like a... It's like an endless abyss, you yep. know, it's yep. just, we also the meme, it's an iceberg, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's hard to know exactly, like, even if you know what your dependency is using, what are their dependencies using and, and so on and so on. So we, uh, to answer your question directly, if someone is just wants to add a new library, that's quite simple. They, they just do it exactly the way you would do it today. You would just add it into your package JSON or you do yarn add or NPM uh, install or something. And these, these would uh, not trigger any processes internally for us to review that. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it depends if it's, if it's at the, it, we leave it to the discretion. Let's put it this way. We leave it to the discretion of the people who are implementing it. So if I'm uh, pulling in a library that is going to fundamentally, it's going to do all the calculations for how uh, how much money to to pay a merchant or something like that. That is going to be scrutinized. Oh yeah, right. But <laughs> but if it's if it's like a left pad, it's yeah. you're not going to care about it too much. It's more about our ability to respond to those um, those issues because practically it's not possible to audit, to audit every single npm um, mm-hmm. package. And sure. so so we we embrace that. Uh, uh, or at least we don't get in the way of it because that would create too much friction. Um, and rather we focus on like how, how quickly we can, uh, we can react and can we statically figure out if anything is bad. Okay. Um, so we've discussed how is your uh, monorepo structured? How are you using uh, React Native? And uh, what benefits and what challenges do you, do you do you see with it? Let's maybe now talk about what is the the use case that you have for Repack in particular. So React Native, Monorepo, we, we we all get that, but Repack is such a unique and uh, I would say even like expensive tool to use because you have to really invest in like using it. So what was the driving, oh, sorry, let's not talk about Klarna yet. 
Yeah, I was saying it's a very unique tool and like unusual. So what is Repack, Kuba? Yeah. <laughs> what exactly. is Maybe let's start with that yeah. to make everything clear. So Repack is an alternative to Metro, right? But um, but Metro is a bundler and we don't like to call uh, Repack a bundler. It's more like a toolkit for Webpack, which is the, the engine powering all that. And as we all know, Webpack is the like the most mature bundler around, right? Um, so what it enables, it essentially allows you to tap into the Webpack ecosystem uh, inside of your React Native apps. Um, it enables things like tree shaking, code splitting, uh, or even simlinks, which was a feature not supported in Metro until very recently. Um, and yeah, um, so maybe a bit... Uh, about tree shaking, what, what it is, uh, it, it uh, basically is able to um, deduct what uh, what libraries are unused in your code and just straight up remove them, reducing your bundle size, therefore making it smaller download for, for the end users. Um, but the most important part uh, about uh, what uh, Repack enables... Yeah. About tree shaking... I understand the value of tree shaking on web uh, because like every time you load the web page, you want your bundle to be as small as possible. People have different devices, different internet connections, stuff like that. Uh, why is my JS bundle size that I download just once from Google Play Store or uh, App Store probably important? Wi-Fi, right? Yeah, like even if I'm not, like how much can JS weigh? <laughs> what's the importance of additional like five max or something? Well, can I just jump in and tell you what the size of, of the Klarna app um, when it's not using Repack? Um, in dev mode, I think it's about a 110 meg bundle. Uh-huh. And in production with, uh, with tree shaking, so I don't know what it is without that, but um, in production with tree shaking, it's about 40 to 50 megs. Okay. So you were able to like get to 40% of the initial bundle size, less than that. Yes, but I, it's hard to measure because we haven't built it with Metro in such a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. hard to uh, like production Metro, which may have additional optimizations, which could shave off more. Exactly. It's hard to attribute a concrete amount to, to just true shaking, right? But exactly. Uh, but the point is that the smaller bundle size is especially useful as uh, when your users have bad internet connection, right? And they want to get on your app. Sure. Probably it also has to do with the interpretation time of like the whole thing. You would think That's so. It? But uh, turns out that, I mean, that used to be the case. And it is still the case slightly at certain sizes. Um, but at, uh, at Klarna, we've discovered that, you know, using Hermes, it actually doesn't, uh, there's not really an interpretation cost mm-hmm. on, on iOS regardless of the bundle size, at least not up to the bundle size we're using. Um, on Android, there is a roughly a 10% cost though. Oh, okay, okay. Um, that might just be a platform-specific difference. But uh, yeah, I, I've heard something about like Hermes using memory mapping or something like this to uh, to make this faster. Yeah, so, yeah. So that's probably... That's the underlying mechanism there, yeah. Okay, so sorry about the digression about tree shaking. Uh, it's just that I'm very ignorant and I don't know. Yeah, so sure. thank you for explaining it to me. 
uh, yeah, so maybe let me get back to the to the biggest feature of Repack, which is code splitting. So what it enables you is to divide your app into into uh, many chunks, and you can only load some specific chunks uh, at the beginning uh, of your app when you are loading it. Um, so that can make the startup faster. Obviously, as as Mike said, the Hermes kind of made that. Um, a little bit obsolete, but uh, I do believe you still have some kind of gains uh, when you have a, such a big app like yourself, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I also wonder things like like um, memory consumption or CPU usage. Maybe there's something there um, with the size of the initial bundle. But what we, what we always assumed was that the size of the bundle and what we saw um, actually when we went through this huge process maybe two years ago of improving the startup performance of our app because it was um, terrible at one point. I think it was like something like almost 30 seconds on a on an old Android device. And that was deemed unacceptable for obvious reasons. So yeah, many users you don't just, say. just quit by that time it loads. So <laughs> when did the people disconnect like after one or two seconds or something? So yeah. Um we uh, what is I saying about it? I forgot now. Uh, investigation over the startup time. Right. Yes. Okay. So we had this, uh, this assumption, um, which held true before Hermes that any, uh, increase to the, the main bundle size, um, corresponds to a increase in the, uh, time to home, which is our metric that we use to like see, um, from the start time of the app until the time that you, the home screen of the app after you've logged in is interactive basically. Mm-hmm. Time to interactive, yeah. Yeah. And this assumption was held for a long time. Um, and then we started using Hermes and we didn't check it again. But it's, uh, yeah, it's no longer really the case that that is true. However, for us, we get um, additional benefits out of, out of this. Like um, you can't get any tree shaking, for instance, in, in Metro, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then there's also a bunch of other things within Webpack that uh, Metro might not have, you know, and uh, a lot of optimization techniques and configurations that you can see people out there using for web um, that were super good um, for certain cases, but you could never do any of those optimizations on um, within React Native. But now with Repack, you can. And at, I don't know, maybe, maybe Metro will become... Um, uh, a like more mature and be able to handle all of these extra optimizations um, in in the future. But uh, one of the other key things, which I I think you were gonna you were getting to there before we got to <laughs> <laughs> was uh, was module federation. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was getting there. So 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 uh, to sorry. Explain. So, so can I can I just do the bridge? So y- you were talking about code splitting. And then module federation is like a next step to code splitting. This is still code splitting we're talking about. It's just like an evolution of it. Yeah, it's like a more sophisticated code splitting that uh, allows you not only to uh, extract uh, parts, uh, like only the, you know, your main source code from from it, but also allows you to kind of divide into uh, like micro front ends where you can also extract dependencies with it, making it uh, 
possible to extract even larger chunks and make them completely independent and just load them on the fly then when the app is running. And load them on the fly, not necessarily from the device, exactly, yeah. but like from remote. Yeah, that's also possible with normal code splitting. You can also load the chunks remotely, but yeah, module federation is, is especially useful when you uh, load this remotely. So it all sounds like uh, Repack is quite uh, a non-standard way of building React Native apps, and it's like it's quite complicated uh, how you are going around with this. So, uh, would you say that we all should drop Metro and start using Repack right away? Absolutely not. Metro Metro is great. Uh, so, so my. Uh, my tip is that uh, if you don't have a specific need for one of the features that I've just mentioned, uh, then there is just really no point in switching to Repack because uh, all of this customizability comes at the cost of uh, harder um, configuration and uh, uh, worse developer experience compared to Metro, right? The standard way of developing apps with Metro is provides a really great developer experience. I think I've heard something very mm, wise, <laughs> let's say yesterday. I, I, I was on a meetup, a JS meetup yesterday, and I've heard one speaker saying that if you solve a problem and you don't create smaller problems, it was not a problem, it was an architectural mistake. Because you can only solve problems by like trade-offs and introduce, if the app was sound be uh, before, you can just split the problem into smaller pieces and like create some new trade-offs, but some problems will still be there. Like it's all about like context and like use cases and, and all of that. So with that beautiful bridge, uh, what was the use case that Klarna tried to solve uh, this like years ago. How, when was it that you first tried Repack in your app two years ago? I think it was 2020 or early 2021. Um, I would have to check the, the dates, but yeah, it, it was it was a while ago. And this was all related to this push to improve the performance. And this is where, where we were having that assumption that I was talking about earlier to say that, you know, the size of the main chunk um, or the, the bundle size is directly proportional to the to the time to interactive, but uh, yeah, and and at the time we weren't using Hermes, I think, on one of the platforms. So uh, and and it was kind of a, a desperate situation because the performance was so bad, and um, the company's focus was let's just make this better. <laughs> so it was, um, I think, we were sort of following a shotgun approach, you know. Where it's like you just spread out and you you try and try and improve as many things as possible, um, just to get it uh, a little better. Um, that's not to say that we were just doing it like blindly. Yeah, <laughs> I, of course, you know the the people working on it like knew what they were doing, but uh, I just mean here that it wasn't. It might not necessarily have been like a a hyper specific reason why we did it. It was mm -hmm. it was probably more that we we saw an opportunity to perhaps impact performance and it did, but there were lots of other things happening at the same time mm -hmm. to also improve performance. You know, to get I, from 30 seconds, I think on Android to like uh, two, 
2.5 seconds now is is what we're at so oh well, wait for this <laughs> i have a soundboard here yeah that's correct <laughs> sorry for interrupting no, continue fine. you should walk around with that actually <laughs> <laughs> um, and then on ios it's like uh, under a second now so that's like um on on par with the industry i guess but yeah, so so our, our use case for using it was um, it was all related to this performance push, and um, I'm yeah going back. I'm uh, I wonder as well if if part of this was because we had an expertise and we we have because um, we have lots of like web apps as well. We have an expertise in Webpack mm -hmm. and that allows us some lower level um, control. I was going to ask you. Actually, like this is the question that uh, came to my mind when, when we were talking about uh, code splitting, uh, tree shaking. Um, if you have web frontend, you use Webpack there and you use Webpack in your mobile app. Is there an overlap in like techniques that you can use and utilize and like some maybe common plugins that you use, stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think that a lot of the stuff we get or free from using repack um, sort of replaces the need for, for a lot of those. But but um, conceptually, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. you know, you're still using Webpack. Like, so if you're familiar with Webpack, and there is a cost to using it, of course, but um, but as Cooper said, it's a, uh, there, it is sort of an industry standard for these things. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so the use case was let's try to fix performance. Let's try a bunch of things. Repack was one of them. Yep. Uh, it, it helped. So what was the process uh, of bringing Repack into the, after the experimental phase, let's say, how long does it take for organization as yours, the big project as your React Native project in Monorepo to bring in Repack and like, just start working with it? I think that the answer today would be different from the one that it was. Mm -hmm. So today, I mean, we're investigating module federation, which we touched on. And, and that is a, a, a lot more involved, a, a much more involved process for us to figure out, is this what we want to do? Um, what are the pros and cons? How do we scale it? How does it work? Um, with Repack, I think it was um, a lot more... Um, we had a lot more. I don't know how how to say this in in a, in a really good way, but but we had some high performing individuals who really knew their stuff, and there was a lot of trust from the organization to them to say, you know, just do what is necessary mm -hmm. to get the performance down. So that process back then was it was simply let's uh, try it out in a branch, get everything working, and merge it in. Mm -hmm. So it it was uh, it was there was less process um, behind it. There was it was more of like a sort of a startup approach, which is uh, kind of how Klarna wants its teams to function as like these mini startups. That's, Let's talk about that yeah. later because this is this is such an interesting topic. But these high performing individuals, I know who are you talking about. So maybe you will just uh, say it out loud because uh, he's really known in React Native community. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm talking mostly about um, Oblador or Yol Ovidson, who uh, I think 
you would know him from such hits as uh, React Native Vector Icons or mm-hmm. React Native Animatable or Loki or like there's a ton of different libraries out there that he has uh, has written and maintains. Um, and yeah, he's uh, he's super good and it was such a privilege to work with him. Um, and I I think I understand his reasoning for, for doing all of this stuff. So I, I, what I'm trying to do is describe it from a historical perspective. And, yeah. and so, uh, I, <laughs> y'all, if I got it wrong, just let me know. <laughs> yeah, just write in the comments. <laughs> we'll be happy to have you as a listener. Um, okay. Oh, oh so, so let me just jump in. Um, today, we would be much more um, process, process-driven, much more like data-oriented mm-hmm. about yeah. Um, but yeah, as, as I said, back then it was a little bit more chaotic because it was like sort of battle stations, all hands on deck. Let's, uh, let's try and solve these problems. Okay. So you bring in Repack. It took one PR apparently. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> a few and, weeks and, of work. And a few follow-up like fixed PRs yeah. as we discover things. But yeah, I think it was basically a few weeks. So how did that change? Changed? the like day-to-day of react native developers on your project what was their like daily uh workflow before that change and after that change so actually nothing changed for them at all it was we don't use um and this is a key difference with us which i think is um probably not really recommended but it makes sense for like cuba use case I don't know, actually. You can tell me if, if you would recommend this or not. Yeah. But we use a different bundler for development and production. So we use Repack for production because that's where we need all these optimizations. But for development, we don't need um, to optimize as much. And we... Uh, you care about HMR speed and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and the developer experience of working with Metro even with such a big app, and it does take a while to start up, but it's a bit better than using Webpack, I think, Absolutely. in dev mode. Yeah, uh, yeah so, so that approach can definitely work. I would only be worried that some libraries might get, you know, because there are different resolvers uh, in both of the bundlers. So sometimes the library might resolve correctly in Metro and might not resolve correctly in Webpack, but other than that, you should be good to go. Yeah, I, I guess you could. And I, I think, I wonder if we're doing this now. You've got me thinking now. Um, wonder if we could have like the same resolution strategy in both. Uh, I was once looking into the subject. It's kind of very deep. You'd have to do, you could, you would need to patch some packages to actually mm. make it work. It's doable, but it's not like you could actually make a nice solution out of it that would be uh, maintainable. Yeah. Yeah, but sure. yeah, you can definitely hack it around and and have the have the same resolution algorithm in there. Okay, uh, I'm going back to uh, like day to day of the developer. Nothing changes. That's great. That's great for me. How about the release process? How about let's actually let's maybe take a step back. How do you you release your products at all from this monorepo? So how do you develop features and then publish them? Yeah, so I mean it it's it's kind of a complicated answer. You um, don't say <laughs> because I'm trying to figure out like what level of detail to give you. But basically we uh 
we have about 70 odd teams who are working on this code base. So maybe I, I need to take a step back to kind of contextualize. Yeah, it. I was trying to go from the release process to the teams, but we can do it yeah. the other way around as well. Okay, so um, no, let's try the release process to the teams. Let's see if this is going to work. Okay. Okay, so our release process is uh, we release our, our web app um, multiple times a day. So this is all automated and um, I would say it happens about 10 to 15 times a day, maybe, depending on how much uh, stuff is getting merged in, how many commits are eligible for release. Uh, and we have a bunch of like um, checks and balances to make sure that the versions we release are actually functioning, at least to some basic level. So we have canary tests. But uh, if you're talking about our React Native app, we have uh, daily builds of, of internal um, facing up that all all of the uh, Klarna employees can uh, they have them automatically pushed to their devices so everyone's always using the latest one mm -hmm. and but then our uh, our actual release cycle to the public is weekly so every every week we sort of cut off branch off and then um, uh, we we literally just like spin up a CI and say quickly build this distribute it and then we we test that amongst all of these different teams. So everyone has to sign off on the release, um, which can take some time because obviously there's lots of there's competing priorities and and with such a frequent release process, I mean a, a week is is kind of fast, I think in the in the industry. And so there's there's uh, there's a lot going on. When you say everyone, you mean every seventy teams? Um, maybe. I mean, I, I don't think it's literally all seventy. I think that. Uh, some of them are just like, well, we didn't change anything okay. or, yeah. or, or even, I mean, it, that's the tough thing because you don't actually know what is impacted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to statically tell if there's a, um, if there's going to be an impact. So we've got some internal tools to try and figure that out, but, uh, yeah. Ultimately, Let's talk about them after we talk about teams. Sure. So ultimately <laughs> everyone, um, everyone should be testing. Every team should be signing off. Mm -hmm. And they have a few days to do that, and then we we release. Um, so, uh, yeah, you, I, I, you I think that's fairly standard. It's just like extra steps for us. Mm -hmm. Do you always go through Apple Store and Google Store, or do you do o OTA over the year? Yeah, so we we do a weekly release um, through the stores, and then we uh, we do over the air releases of just the JavaScript where like when necessary so okay. if there's like um some sort of thing that needs more urgent uh updating you know may, it, it could be something like the legal text is slightly wrong we need to quickly fix that mm -hmm. or it might be a, a bug that prevents someone from from doing something um if it's serious enough then we can push out uh, an update over the air um and maybe i'll just quickly touch on that we we built a, an in-house process that works on top of Repack, actually, and uh, to to allow us to do this. So that's one of the other benefits we actually get from Repack, which is we're able to, um, as I mentioned, our, our app is like, let's say, 40, 45 megs of JavaScript. If you only change one line, we don't want to push out another 45 megs of JavaScript. <laughs> We'd rather push out as small, like, as small a piece as possible. So. Um, using code splitting, um, we can actually do that. And using the 
like the Webpack runtime and the Repack um, like plugins into that, mm-hmm. we're able to uh, redirect some parts of the code to load the new bits of uh, the new chunks that we download. So basically, we can just download the diff and then um, serve and then load that into the app at runtime instead of uh, instead of um, sort of loading it completely remotely we do it all locally on the device i'm not sure if i'm gonna be able to recover from this but i have another follow-up question to this so are you you making notes of that (laughs) uh i I don't know where where we are in the breadcrumbs okay we'll try we'll try um so what's the what's the splitting points for your code splitting you have you have a set of clearly defined chunks of code that you split your app yeah we have um we split based on the uh route that you're on Mm -hmm. so teams develop features and those features provide um, sort of a list of routes that like that uh, you you can navigate to and we sort of try to follow the web-based approach which is when you go to a when you go to like slash about or something, you know, some, some URL, you're going to only load the the bits of code that are necessary for that one. Mm-hmm. And so we try to sort of follow the same approach on native where the, the, what we call the async boundary is actually at the, uh, at the route level. So only as you load the route, um, will we load any additional chunks that are necessary. And I mean, when I say we do this, like a lot of it's just automated mm-hmm. because webpack and repack. Okay, so if I made a mistake or the legal text has to be changed in the about page, uh, would I download the whole about page chunk or would I download just a part of this? You would, you would, uh, we would operate on the chunk level. Mm -hmm. So you would download um, the about page chunk and maybe one or two other ones, which could have, there is a bit of a black box when you, when you build with, with these bundlers, they might make a decision where now you have two chunks instead of one, or mm-hmm. they might combine them or something like this. Uh, so, so we, we just, I mean, uh, our approach is kind of, kind of basic with this, um, because I mean, the simple one is also easier to understand. So we have, if you need to perform an over there update, you would make your change and then you would build the app and compare that built app to the app that we release to customers. Um, and you can like compare the, the JavaScript directly. You can say, oh, look, these are the files that changed between these two versions. Um, package up that difference and then um, make that the diff that we, that we ship to people. Mm-hmm. So, and this is your custom solution. Yep. Kuba, what is the standard way of achieving like similar uh, benefits? Uh, I'll actually get back to that. I just I just got one follow-up question from Mike. <laughs> yeah, uh, how how do you? Because I'm I can't stop thinking about this. Uh, how do you deal with different versions of Klarna app on your um, in the wild, right? And um, and the diffing and the diffing process, right? Because you have to sometimes there's gonna be more diff for the older versions of the app, right? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so we we operate at a um, at the version level for that. So we, we're surgical on it. So we say, if you need to make a change, uh, let's say you discover this, this problem in a, in the version of the app that we released like two weeks ago or something, then you know that it's in that one and all future versions. 
So you firstly, you fix it in our main branch. Um, and then, then now you know, versions released from now will have the fix. But then you need to go back and say, I know those two versions. And everyone in, in our uh, ecosystem uh, within Klarna knows like, about our release process. And they all are, are, are aware it's, it's weekly and you know, like where their changes would be. So uh, they would then go and cherry pick those fixes onto the release branches. And then you'd create a separate over there update for each one. So okay. it's not that we're like, um, I mean, the, the dream is that you can just say, here is new JavaScript and just run it. But you like practically, that's very difficult to do, not only because uh, you want to be more surgical for like data saving reasons, but you also want to um, ensure that between versions, um, where something in the native side could have changed. And we do have some native code in our app and we have native developers that are working on that. And if those uh, libraries are, are not compatible with the new JavaScript that you built <laughs> today or something, um, then it's not, it's not going to work. So we have to be surgical about it today. Okay. Uh, we would like to get to, and we've got some plans and, and maybe module federation can, can, um, can be the way to solve this for us. But, uh, yeah, maybe we can talk about the, the future plans for us <laughs> afterwards. But uh, yeah. yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, and now you, that you, you yes, yeah, Lukash, could you please repeat the question? Because I'm no. gonna, I'm gonna. Um, Klarna has a custom built way of doing the OTA based on repack under the hood, but they've implemented a lot of like different, uh, you know, special sauce on the top. What is the standard way? in repack like uh there are different otas uh, in the wild uh code push yeah uh, expo, uh, expo update, update yeah uh what is the standard way of doing this in repack well repack offers you a utility to actually just load the the chunk on the fly uh it's a very simple utility but what we uh help with is essentially locating that chunk downloading it and loading it right so uh it's it's very simple, but it helps to achieve uh, uh, what Klarna actually did. So um, we only care about that bit in Repack, and the rest is kind of up to the user to, to, to implement. Okay. What about the module federation in like the OTA uh, area? It actually uses the same mechanism underneath to, to load the chunk. Okay. So, so there, there is still that part, uh, part under, under, under the hood that, that does the loading, but, uh, what, what just changes is, um, how the chunks get loaded because in module further, you first load the container chunk, which mm -hmm. is like, which is like an entry point, And then you, you load, uh, the rest of the chunks as needed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are like three levels deep in digression. Yeah, let's, let's try and back yeah. up. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where we were. So let's maybe go to the area of discussion that I really want to like flesh out and I really want to like pick your brains about. So you use, let's back up even more from the beginning. A lot of users, like huge money, uh, the uptime needs to be uh, perfect. Huge team. You said 400 developers. Yeah, it fluctuates between 350 and 500. Yeah. React Native, Repack in it, like all the other services. 
So how the hell is your team structured to have timely weekly releases or to have 10, 15 releases of your web, probably a similar number of like different microservices for your backend. And then once a week to create a releasable app. So how is your team structured to accomplish all of this? <laughs> so the, the way that Klarna, like a, a couple of years ago, um, before, before I joined, they switched what they call their operating model to optimize for um, continuous improvement, let's say, where I think traditionally you, would, you might look at like a large organization and say, okay, they spec out a big project and then you can work on that project and like everything about it is is sort of predetermined in a waterfall sort of um, scenario. But with uh, with Kana, what what it tried to do, and and I think um, what our CEO uh, sort of uh, hinted at at one point was that it's hard for Klarna, which was a startup many years ago, and I guess you could like yeah, I guess it's not technically a startup anymore, but like it still has a lot of that mentality of um, move fast and not break banking things exactly yeah <laughs> just move fast yeah <laughs> so the yeah it's hard to compete with other startups because at a startup you don't uh you don't really care that much about breaking things um you rather like and, and you're not scared to just take on massive massive um uh, things and just throw like a, a new product provider or something at it. Yeah. Oh, I need to solve notifications. Let me just get this provider, just throw it in, whatever. Um, I, obviously at Klarna, it's like, it's a little bit, when the organization gets big enough, it's, it becomes harder to do those sorts of things. You can't make as flippant decisions. So, but anyway, like the, my, my point here is that the way that Klarna um, is structured internally is you have these, um, like sort of layers so you have like a, a domain and the domain um uh has groups within it and the groups have teams and each mm -hmm. team has its uh sort of it, it owns a vertical slice of some problem that it needs to solve and so uh, it, within the apps context what that means is maybe someone owns the about screen like we we're talking about about earlier maybe there's a team that just owns that screen or maybe there's a team that owns a button on that screen. Okay, that's mm -hmm. literally like the level that some of these things are at. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the they won't only just own the button, they'll own all the logic behind it on the on the client, as well as the logic that goes um, to the backend, um, and maybe even a few layers deep within the backend as well. But the um, our systems are all set up to to handle this. So for instance, any change you make to the backend um, is automatically deployed for you and um, and monitored in this canary releases. Anything uh, you do the front end, the the same thing for web. But the because of this, uh, let's let's call it a. I don't mean in a negative way, but let's say it's like a fractured or splintered way, mm -hmm. like a web that is there's um, how how the company is organized. This uh, does make it a little bit challenging. To all come together, and say <laughs> let's package this experience up for for a customer now. Yeah, um, but I don't have a good answer for you other than like somehow it works. We have some dedicated um, people and processes that are, that 
that uh, keep the energy up to like, you know, chase people and say, all right, got this new release coming out. Like, let's, let's stay on board with all this. Of course, what it, what it can mean is that, you know, maybe your original plans don't, don't always work out um, because you're, you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, to do everything, but uh, that, that's fine. It's like a, it's a highly agile organization in, in, in that respect. It's such a fascinating journey you, you, you took us through because uh, like usually in my experience, I, I, I cannot say that I've been in like many, many projects, but like in the projects that I've been, it is usually the experience of this is a dev team. They take the requirements from product team and you just implement the requirements and like, but in your case, what you've described is that you have this teams that are really interdisciplinary. Yep. They have different people sitting on the teams and they own in like really, uh, really true sense, the splice of the whole product. Exactly. So in that sense, you could think of every team as a product team. Yeah. You know, like you, you own the customer experience and the things that like add to that, that includes, for instance, um, that, you know, uh, if, if your team was creating virtual cards, virtual credit cards or something mm -hmm. like this, you would own the, the back end that actually goes and generates that card. You're not only just owning the front end piece because by, by layering it, um, that way, like there's, I guess there's less ownership. If you were to have just a front end team or just a back end team, um, there's a little bit less ownership about the, the problem space. Um, but what actually matters is that a user can get one of these cards and use them. So um, by optimizing for an actual user problem or optimizing for an actual like business problem, then you're able to, you, you can make decisions and like uh, take trade-offs. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's all within your, within your realm. Like it's a, that's what I was saying earlier, like <laughs> the teams are sort of like startups, you know, they've, They've got their own um, problems, their own KPIs, their own things that they're that they're uh, trying to solve, and um, yeah, in the business, of course, there are overarching things like there are product directions coming down the line. You know, oh yeah, oh, we want but, to be doing this. Uh, I got a question: How do you how do you decide who who owns what code? How is it structured in your in your app? <clears throat> this is a good question. We have a um, we've got a model, um, boy, hang on, how do we decide it or how do we enforce it? <laughs> how do you enforce it? Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cause I, I'm not exactly sure how we decide it. We, we sort of give people a bit of, um, freedom with that. Um, so, so there is a little bit of self-organization with how teams decide to like split up their quote unquote features, you know, whatever they, they might be, but we enforce it, uh, not using a code owners, um, model that is, uh, you know, popularized by GitHub and, and, um, uh, those uh, those providers, but we use something that uh, is more fam maybe it's not more familiar, but it is it is familiar to JavaScript developers. We we use a a field in a package JSON. So what that means um, is uh, the root if the the repo is like a tree, and the root of the tree has a package JSON, and that has like a team variable in it, and this what team mm -hmm. field and be team is like. I don't know, the, the core team or something, then everything below that, 
is owned by that team until it encounters another package JSON that has that has this field in it with a different team name. Um, and this this uh, actually sort of mimics the way that node modules are resolved as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that sounds very very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so what's nice about that is that you you can um, you can actually take ownership of small folders within other parts of the code that might in general be owned by someone else you know um, but we operate actually at a at a what we call a package level or a yarn workspace level so uh, the, we've got about like 4000 of those in our in our clients <laughs> repository that's a lot and and some there of those are really small but they, some of them there were a lot of numbers uh, in this episode, uh, and we hear <laughs> millions, thousands, and, and and all of that. The the scale is huge. This is this yeah. is what we are saying. Uh, Four thousand uh, workspaces. That's quite a lot. I really like the algorithm for like establishing, not establishing, like the maintaining of the ownership, mm. and uh, so like as a developer, I can know. Whom should I ask about like this piece of code or like during the PR review? I guess it's like uh, kind of uh, automized. Yeah, uh, yeah. To... We've got like a merge checker that that's that sees like oh you've made this change, so you can't approve your own code, of course. But then um, it builds up a list of teams or owners um, for uh, for the changed files that you've made in your in your pull request, and says, okay, well, what teams own these files? And then it will post a comment. Uh, with a link to like the team and the team channel on Slack and mm -hmm. oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. So, tooling I, I I love tooling <laughs> um, let's back up um, this is an episode of React Native at Scale we want to get to the bottom of intersection technology versus organization versus business and what you've been saying about your team structure independent teams creating almost independent pieces of the product. It reminds me of something. Kuba, what is, what it is? What I think you're thinking about Conwheel, right? Yeah. 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 So uh, we have this concept of Conway law. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it here, but uh, our head of technology, I'll Mike. Try. I'll try to try to okay. explain. Uh, so it, it basically is, um, that um, the communication structure within the company kind of reflects the, the final design that, that uh, gets, uh, gets made, right? And uh, that was true for many cases before. Uh, so that's, that's why it was uh, kind of invited about this guy, Con Conway. Uh, we have uh, actually a, a talk available on, on our site. Um, uh, from our head of technology, as as Walker was saying, um, uh, Mike Pishkawa. Uh, talk is called the Invisible Architect. So if you want to read up on that, uh, please do check it out. Yeah, and the the talk is called in Invisible Architect. Yep. But it seems like in your case, it was a really uh, thought out decision. Like it was clear that we are going to. We are going to make those teams as pseudo startups inside our organization so that they can create features like structured in this way. So it was mm. like really. Um, but I guess the, 
the there is the inverse law as well, right? Which is that however you mm-hmm. structure your code can bubble up and it changes like how the organization yeah, is yeah. as well. And now I'm wondering, are we is this how we want to be? Is this mm-hmm. like like is there like a responsibility as someone who is architecting this to uh, to make sure that it aligns with the organization as well? You're not like driving the organization in a different direction, but yeah, it's it's an interesting um it's an interesting theory. And I, I think that it holds true for us because we, I mean, everything I'm describing about how, how sort of um, isolated or how broken apart, like all the bits of even just the app are, um, and our ownership model enables this as well. Like all of these things sort of line up with this idea that, well, if our operating model at a, as a company is to um, break things into small pieces that teams can own then yeah i mean like that's the that that sort of plays itself out in our code structure as well uh okay we have time to talk about one more thing but i have two things on my list so i I let you decide we can talk about uh your engagement as klarna let's back up a little bit like open source in organizations like Klarna, not necessarily what you're doing in this space, but what are your thoughts around this? Or maybe we can talk about the more technical things still, like module federation in Repack and what are your future plans of uh, like Repack module federations at Klarna? Hmm. Your pick. I feel like there's like a bit of overlap with them. We'll probably end up talking about both either way. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you a little bit about our um about what we want um to be able to do with our yeah. architecture. Mm-hmm. So what I've been doing now is describing the architecture that we that we have and like the situation we find ourselves in, like almost like almost as an observer. You know, this is what I see, this is my experience. But what we're trying to do now is um, Klarna really wants to be able to have a, a sort of a, a cohesive experience across all customer touch points. So internally, we call it like the a Netflix-like experience, you know, like mm-hmm. a, you start watching on one device and then you switch over to another device and then you just pick up where you left off. Um, we've got a couple of examples of this inside of inside of our products, but we are trying to standardize um, as much as possible throughout the organization um, to enable uh, to enable this sort of thing where every product has the ability to like link into other ones and they share a feature set and uh, you don't have things that are like oh this is only app specific but it doesn't make sense it could have been it could have gone, uh, it could have been on the web as well. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to, like, obviously things like Apple Wallet integrations, that's probably going to be on the app only, right? But um, there's no reason why other internal or other features that we have shouldn't be everywhere. And we want to, um, we want to enable this world where, like, y- you can be everywhere without much cost as a feature team. So you're developing a feature and it, and you exist within within your, like, let's say you're originally thinking, oh, I'm only going to like have this surface on, on the native app. But we don't even want you to think like that. We want you to think like, here's a Klarna feature. And because you write it a certain way, it could be on, on any of our touch points. It could be in an, in 
in our Klarna app could be in um, a different app that we might release. I don't know. Or, mm-hmm. um, or it could be on the web or in browser extension or um, on on our uh, on Klarna.com or on, on various of our uh, like the companies that we might own or or work with. So sort of this this ability to just deploy everywhere all at the same time from a single piece of code that is the end goal yeah that's where we're trying to get to and it's quite challenging <laughs> as you could imagine but uh this is why we're eyeing things like module federation because but that th- sort of tells that story as well yeah like getting back from the beginning the monorepo the react native the js the like repack webpack all of that were i feel like steps to that goal yeah yeah, and, and I mean, even when we're talking about code ownership now and the, and the team structures, they are also like all aligned with this. Like imagine a team could own a button and everything behind it. And I mean, today they can they can deploy their backend changes immediately. Why can't they do the same thing for their front-end changes on all of our touch points? So like independent deployability, actual isolation, um, sort of uh, this like a, a plug-in architecture where you can just like add new features, remove them and, and sort of have more control as a, as an organization and more, uh, a more cohesive experience across all of your touch points. That's, that's the dream. Um, but yeah, standardization with this kind of stuff is kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. So last question of this episode and we are, uh, of this episode and we are wrapping up and, uh, the last question is, so how can module federation help out with this how do you see the role there like what's the technical explanation for this so module federation um my mental model of it and i'm gonna ask Kuba to uh verify I'll try to <laughs> try to help so my mental model of it is it's sort of like a if you think of a of a single project being being this big big tree. In, in fact, in the same way that we could enable code splitting today, you know, you take a tree and you break it off into separate branches. You you can sort of think about module federation like this as well, where you have like a a product that you're trying to release, like an app or or something. And and what module federation allows you to do is say parts of the app are resolved at runtime, and those can bring in all their dependencies and um, and any of the dependencies they bring in are loaded into like the 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 running um, sort of process mm-hmm. and then they can be shared by other uh, by other parts of the app as well so it's not like it's not like completely separate apps that are all loading all of their own dependencies together it's like they're all they are isolated but they can be and they can be deployed in isolation they resolve at runtime but they can uh, all contribute back to a single shared sort of cache of modules. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, there's this one single, uh, well, actually it can be multiple, but let's stick with a simple example. Yeah, you can have a scope where you, where you got these uh, shared dependencies and then you, you can reduce the duplication in your code. But at the same time, it allows you to, uh, if some of your, uh, let's say mini apps wants to use uh, 
different version of a JS library, you can still load that in and have two copies uh, of library. One is older that is compatible with the rest of the app and one, one newer one. Yep. Okay, thank you, guys. That's a wrap-up. But I will do the conclusion, the, sure. the wrap-up of this episode. So thank you, Mike. Thank you, Kuba, for joining me on the episode of the React Native Show podcast in a serious React Native at scale. And boy, that was a scale. It was a great episode. I'm really happy about this. We talked about React Native in FinTech and in, in Klarna in particular. Uh, we were talking about using Repack at scale in the place it's supposed to be. Uh, we were talking, obviously, how the organizational organization impacts technology and how technology impacts organization. Um, and uh, we are looking for more business uh, businesses using Repack and to get your insights about it. So reach out to us, reach out to Kuba. Uh, he'll be more than happy to find out more about the like wild repacks running into the wild. <laughs> so, and uh, we encourage everyone to try out repack and uh, share your thoughts with us. Uh, yeah, so that was it. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much, listeners. And uh, see you in the next one. <laughs>